This message was recorded during a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Well, good morning. Welcome to week two of our class identified by God, uh, sexuality and gender in Scripture. Thank you again for being here early this morning. And uh, we will try our best to uh, get out in plenty of time for you guys to be first in line for the chicken biscuits. So don't worry about that. Uh, we may still have a few trickle in here as well. But let me go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll get started. Father, we're thankful to you this morning for the opportunity again to search your word together, to think together about what you have revealed to us about what is true and good and beautiful and praiseworthy. And Lord, I pray that your word would be life-giving to us this morning. We know as, as uh, 1 John says, your commands are not burdensome. And the truth will set us free. And I pray, Lord, that that is what we will know this morning. That your word is freeing to us in whatever direction it leads us. And I pray that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us help, you would give us hope, and that you would help us not only to think truly about gender and sexuality, but that you would help us to live in your grace, your gracious design, your gracious care for us. So Lord, please help us, please teach us, please shape us this morning, we pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, well, uh, many of you, I guess, were here last week when Mike uh, got things started by sharing with us some of the, some of the, um, the, the ways that we got uh, to sort of our cultural moment when it comes to gender and sexuality, and uh, he offered us some good thoughts there, and he also gave us some foundational biblical principles about how to think about sexuality, and among what he said was, when we think about gender and sexuality, uh, our first principle is to recognize that God is our creator, that God is the one who defines who we are uh, more than anything else, more than our feelings, more than our wishes, uh, more than our desires. Our feelings are untrustworthy when it comes to thinking these things through. And it is the word of God that defines us. You know, the more I read Scripture, the older I get, the more I realize how pervasive this idea is in Scripture. What it is to be wise is to place ourselves under God's Word and under His truth, uh, not to be wise in our own eyes, uh, not to go our own direction, as Proverbs 3 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. This is just a way of life for us. God's Word is always not only true, but it is good for us. And sin is always, uh, as it's pressing on us, uh, tempting us to distrust God, to think He's withholding something from us. This is just what what Eve was thinking, what Adam and Eve were, were thinking uh, when sin came into the world. Uh, God must be withholding something from me. And so instead of trusting his word to direct, uh, they trusted, uh, ended up trusting what seemed good to them, what, what uh, uh, their feelings or wishes led them to do. 
And so what we want to do as we think about this very um, important topic, this topic that's very explosive in our own day, is to, to say to ourselves, we don't want to trust our own desires, our own wishes always on these topics of sexuality and gender, but we want to, and we don't, we don't want to be wise in our own eyes, but we want to trust the word of the Lord there for us. Uh, one way that uh, Rosaria Butterfield puts this in her book, uh, Openness Unhe Unhindered, and by the way, if you don't know of Rosaria Butterfield, uh, she is a person who um, lived a, a lifestyle as a lesbian for many years, so much so that she even taught at Syracuse University uh, what was called queer studies, uh, and she uh, lived... Uh, with a woman for many years as a lesbian and she started to read the Bible and she was befriended by a Presbyterian pastor and uh, over the course of about two years this Presbyterian pastor befriended her and uh, not in such a way to ridicule her or push her away or treat her like she was um, scum but uh, sh she was taken aback by his friendship, how much he listened to her, how much he cared for her. He invited her over for dinner. She had dinner in his home many times. And she said uh, in her book, uh, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, she says that he, he spent um, costly time with me. You know, this was not just some type of evangelism relationship, where, you know, some bait and switch. Uh, but it was costly time that he spent with her and as she uh, read the Bible she um, became convinced that the the Word of God was true and that his perspective on her life was uh, better than her own feelings were and uh, she says um, in this in this book openness on him unhindered if God is the creator of all things and if the Bible has its seal of truth and power then the Bible has the right to interrogate my life and my culture and not the other way around. So she has this perspective that Scripture is giving us in Proverbs and elsewhere. And I love as she tells her uh, story of her conversion, and she's done this in more than one place now, her book, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. I recommend that to you uh, if you ever get a chance to read it. Uh, her book, Openness Unhindered, she tells the story again. But as she talks about uh, the, the night when it all came to a head for her, uh, she says it this way, um, that night I prayed and asked God if the gospel message was for someone like me too. Remember her situation, where she was, what kind of lifestyle she was living. She says, I prayed that if Jesus was truly a real and risen God, that he would change my heart. And if he was real, and if I was his, I prayed that he would give me the strength of mind to follow him and the character to become a godly woman. I prayed for the strength of character to repent for a sin that at that time didn't feel like sin at all. So I want you to notice what she's saying here. Even when this happened, she didn't feel like her lesbian lifestyle was sin. That's not the way she felt. But she had come to conclude that the word of God was true and that Jesus was Lord. And so it wasn't a matter of what she felt that, uh, as what drove her here, but whatever God determined. 
She says, it felt like life, plain and simple. I pray that if my life was actually his life, that he would take it back and make it what he wanted it to be. That's the kind of lifestyle that the book of Proverbs and that the scriptures from start to finish are pressing on us to say, Lord, uh, whatever I feel, I pray you would take my life and make it what you want it to be. And she says, I asked him to take it all, my sexuality, my profession, my community, my tastes, my books, and my tomorrows. So Mike led us in, in that last week, and I just want to add my amen to that as we are engaging with these issues. We want to be the kind of people in everything, not just in terms of sexuality, but with everything, and saying we're not going to trust in our own uh, in our own wisdom. We're not going to be wise in our own eyes. We're not going to trust in our feelings, especially as Mike shared last week, that every, every part of our lives is, is colored by sin. But what we want to say is Jesus is Lord, and his perspective is what I want to submit my life to more than anything else. Now this at times when it comes to sexuality is going to mean some denying ourselves at times. Uh, some denying ourselves. I would venture to think that since we all live in this broken world, since we all experience life as sinners, that our sexuality is included in that bentness, that sinfulness for every one of us in this room regardless of what our experience might be um, you know we do want to think carefully about issues in our own day like homosexuality and transgender and those kinds of things but uh, my hunch which I think is an educated hunch from my own life and from scripture is that every one of us in this room has some type of brokenness in our lives due to sexuality uh, in some way. Uh, I, I, I would imagine if I were to ask for a show of hands, we would all lift our hand and say, There's, there has been experiences in my life where I have experienced the weight and heaviness of the brokenness of sexuality in my life and in the world that we live in. Whether that's a struggle with um, uh, homosexuality or same-sex attraction, or whether that's a struggle with some type of sexual abuse, or whether it's... Uh, uh, a, a struggle with sinful temptation in some other way. We all have experienced some type of brokenness, maybe and probably some brokenness driven by uh, our own sinfulness. And uh, therefore, as we think about this, there's some measure here where we should uh, all, um, as the gospel calls us to do, uh, to to take up the cross and follow Jesus. Deny ourselves, take up the cross, and follow Jesus. And listen to the way Sam Alberry puts this. His little book that Sam Alberry wrote is God Anti-Gay. And by the way, Sam Alberry is a man who, over the course of his life, struggled with same-sex attraction. And uh, he's written um, movingly about his own experience in uh, grappling with Scripture and in following Christ. Uh, but what he says is denying yourself does not mean tweaking your behavior here and there. It is saying no to your deepest sense of who you are for the sake of Christ. To take up a cross is to declare your life as you have known it, forfeit. It is laying down your life for the very reason that your life, it turns out, is not yours at all. 
It belongs to Jesus. He made it, and through his death, he has bought it. That sounds exactly what Rosaria Butterfield was saying, doesn't it? Uh, my life is not my own. It is his, and I'm asking him to take it and make of it what he, what he will. Now, of course, uh, of course, what Jesus promises here is that he who uh, does not save his life is the one who will find it ultimately, right? So even if it doesn't match with sometimes our feelings and inclinations and desires and wishes, it is in laying down our lives and taking up the cross of Jesus that we find true life in him in so many ways. And listen to what Alberry says here. He says, if someone thinks the gospel has somehow slotted into their life quite easily without causing any major adjustments to their lifestyle or aspirations, it is likely that they have not really started following Jesus at all. And I love this because what it, what it says and what, I, what I'm trying to say about this here is that if every one of us in this room have experienced some type of sexual brokenness through our own sin in some way in our lives and we come face to face with the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's a measure in which each one of us then as we take up our cross will uh, need to press into some major adjustments from the gospel. I say that simply to say we're, we're not going to say as human beings that those who experience homosexual desire or same-sex attraction or, uh, or uh, things like that are the ones who need to make major adjustments to their lives in light of the gospel. No, what I'm saying is every one of us, as we encounter the gospel of Jesus Christ, have room for making major adjustments. If the gospel seems to slot easily into our lives, Perhaps we have not understood uh, the gospel call fully. So, uh, our hope then is for each one of us to think uh, carefully about uh, gender and sexuality and the kinds of things that Jesus calls us to. Now, that might mean for us an intense struggle with same-sex attraction, something like that. Uh, it might mean uh, other types of sinful desires with um, lust or um, other things but whatever it is uh, what we want to do is ask the Lord to guide us to shape us to teach us all right well this morning what I want to do uh, is I'm not going to spend a lot of time this morning again answering all the questions about um, maybe the hot button issues just yet because I want to lay some more biblical foundation for these issues. We're going to get to those. Uh, and next week, uh, Jake is going to come. And he's going to talk some about um, marriage. And, and, uh, and uh, he's going to talk some about um, the, um, the broken uh, views of sexuality in our society and some of the pulls and tugs there and then the final week I'm going to come again and I'm going to dig a little bit more deeper in some of the hot button issues that are a part of our day trans, uh, transgender and uh, homosexuality and things like that what I want to do this morning is lay some more theological foundation that will help us understand those issues better because if we don't have a th if we don't have the right kind of biblical and theological vision for sexuality then what we're going to end up with, with is just some mere rules for sexuality. Perhaps the 
um, uh, you know, the long and short of what we'll think about sexualities. We'll have some rules like uh, no sex before marriage and, you know, we'll know the right kinds of guidelines and that will be it. But I think what God desires for us is not just that we know the things to stay away from, but that we understand deeply what sexuality is as he has created it, as he has designed it. Uh, and because, because sex is something that he has given us as a gift to be embraced, and it's not until we understand these um, uh, foundational kinds of theological issues and biblical issues that we will experience our sexuality as human beings as it was designed to be. So what I want to do this morning is I want to think with you about the sexuality of Jesus. <laughs> that might sound like a strange thing to say, the sexuality of Jesus. If we know anything about Jesus, we think, uh, well, he was never married, uh, never experienced any kind of sexual relationship. And so isn't it strange? Isn't this a strange topic to talk about the sexuality of Jesus? And it might seem that way, but what I want to suggest is that thinking about the sexuality of Jesus is incredibly important for us in understanding sexuality and gender. And the reason uh, for that is because Jesus reveals to us more than anyone else in the history of the world what it means to be truly human. Does he not? And we talk often about how Jesus was fully human. Jesus is the quintessential human being. He teaches us what it is to be human. And that means that uh, more than anyone else, he has something to teach us about how we should be thinking about sexuality. So when we think about sexuality, we're not just, in order to find foundational principles, we don't just go to Genesis 1 and 2. We do go there. And uh, we'll do some more of that next week uh, as Jake is here talking about marriage and things like that. But we need to go to Jesus because he reveals to us more than anyone else what it is to be human. Like I said, without thinking about the sexuality of Jesus, we run the risk of being left with a stale set of moral rules, moral convictions without a gospel that shapes them. We'll end up with legalism, really, about these kinds of matters. Um, and as Mike pointed out last week, that can lead us sort of to a self-righteousness or a condescension in our Christian engagement with issues of sexuality, and we don't, uh, we don't want to do that. And of course, probably our culture is often worn out sometimes by the way Christians engage with these kinds of issues. We want to undergird these things with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, um, let's think about the life of Jesus. He was born of a virgin, as we know. He lived a, a, a celibate life. He never married. He had a male human body and when he rose from the dead he also had a body a human body and so the question you want to ask is are these things about Jesus essential to his humanness or are they incidental are they cosmetic things just sort of the lifestyle he took on as he came or do these things have cosmic significance Mike spoke last week about, um, uh, about how there have 
become problems with our, our cultures thinking about sexuality based on uh, philosophical materialism, thinking about the universe only as material. But there's, a, there's another false way of thinking about the world that has sometimes colored our thinking about sexuality as well. It's an old uh, religious expression that was found in the first century uh, called docetism. And uh, docetism comes from a Greek word which means to seem. And uh, the, the idea there was that Jesus just seemed like he had a human body. He just seemed like he was human, but in reality he was not. And part of the reason that this thinking came along is because it was, there was an idea in the, in the Greek culture that, that physical things and flesh and human things were bad. The soul is good. The spiritual things are good, but the body is bad, and uh, physical things are bad. And so some who were influenced by this way of thinking uh, said Jesus was divine, he was spiritual, but he was not fully human because divine and spiritual things which are good cannot take on human flesh, which is bad. And you see uh, traces of interaction with these kinds of ideas in the New Testament. This is why it would have been so shocking for John to say, uh, and the logos became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That would have been shocking uh, to Greek ears in so many ways. This kind of thinking sometimes even gets into Christian thinking doesn't it? We tend to think that spiritual things are things of the soul, things of the mind, and not things of the body, you know, and, um, and sometimes this leads us to want to deny the body things and not to appreciate the goodness of not just spiritual reality but physical reality. Our bodies are good. The things that God created in this world that are physical are good things. In fact, Paul in in 1 Timothy, I just want to read you this passage. Uh, Paul thinks that this kind of docetism kind of thinking is incredibly harmful and detrimental. Uh, he says, this is 1 Timothy chapter 4, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And hear this part. He says, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Notice how Paul is suggesting here that the stuff God made, the physical stuff, the earthy stuff, the fleshy stuff is good. God created it to be good. And as you read uh, the creation story in Genesis 1, you see that. Every time God created something, he called it good. When he created uh, human beings, at the end it was very good. And, and people will come along who seem to be super spiritual who will tell us to deny certain things like physical things. Deny marriage. Deny sex. Deny food because you're going to be more spiritual if you do these things. And Paul says that is not only wrong, it's demonic. It's incredibly damaging. The, uh, the physical parts of reality that God created are, cre are good. They're 
created by God to be received with thanksgiving, and that in includes our human bodies and our sexuality, even. And Jesus was fully human in every way. He had a human body just like we have. He experienced all of the nitty-gritty of what it means to be human. As it says in Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2, in verse 14, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, uh, namely the children of God, he, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And then if you look down to verses 16 and 17, it says, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So if Jesus is going to help us, if he's going to bring a salvation to us as human beings, then he's going to need to, to share in our flesh and blood. And he was made like us in every way. And that includes our sexuality. Um, Todd Wilson, uh, one theologian, suggests that this idea of docetism is like the Superman view of Jesus. You know, uh, Clark Kent was, I don't really know the story that well. I've never been a big, uh, you know, superhero kind of guy. But, uh, but Clark Kent apparently was from another planet. He was not human, right? And this, this uh, Clark Kent thing was just a, a guise. It was not his real, not who he really was, right? It was, uh, the Clark Kent was a guise so that he could mingle among human beings and, and, and live a human life in certain ways. But in reality, he was Superman and, and uh, not this human figure. Well, that's not the way it is with Jesus. Yes, he is fully divine, but he's also fully human in every way. Now, if you think about this, this means that Jesus was uh, what Todd, Todd Wilson says, uh, he was biologically sexed. He had all of the biological realities of human sexuality, the hormones and everything else. He did not come as a sexless creature like the angels might be. He was male. He had a Y chromosome. He uh, went through puberty, you know, experienced all the same types of human uh, things that we experience. It may be strange to think about that, but it shouldn't be, should it? Because that's not only a part of who he was, but it was uh, essentially a part of his life. This means that in his coming as a human being, he affirmed our basic sexuality in creation. Now, this doesn't mean that just because Jesus was male and had a Y chromosome that, uh, that uh, men have an edge over women in relating to God, of course, because I think what we can see in Scripture is that what Jesus did in his humanity was um, affirm uh, male and female sex sexuality. You may remember he was born from a virgin's womb. 
he was uh, once in the in amniotic fluid he had an umbilical cord um, he bore the whole genetic history of his mother in doing so and, and therefore he embraced male and female sexuality there's no male sexuality without female sexuality there's an interdependence and a complementarity here 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, Paul even points us to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 11 and 12 says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. And what I'm suggesting is that the humanity of Jesus affirms this basic binary sexuality of our human existence, male and female. This sexuality that we have is an essential part of our creaturely existence, and therefore it should be embraced. It is a gift from God. Sometimes, and I know this has happened given the, the brokenness of our sexual lives sometimes sometimes we might feel like we want to push our sexuality aside you know uh, perhaps we've wished at times that um, that there was no such thing as sexuality uh, given the degree of brokenness that we may have experienced in sexuality to one degree or another but the reality is that our sexuality is a gift from God that is essential to our creaturely existence and it should be embraced as a gift and learned from. So what I'm suggesting here is that the incarnation of Jesus has something important to say to us about how essential sexuality is to our human life. But also, not just the, in, the incarnation of Jesus, but also the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus rises from the dead with a resurrection body. He does not... Uh, rise from the dead and become a disembodied spirit. He, infer he affirms the, the importance of embodiedness, not, to, not just to this age, but also to the one to come. The Bible says that Jesus will come back the same way he left. When, uh, when he rose from the dead, he said to his disciples at Luke uh, 24, 39, put your hands in these nail scars. And what he's suggesting here is that even our resurrection, even our new creation that we're moving toward is embodied. And it is good. Humanness is not just an external reality. And even in his resurrection body, he still is male, in a sense. He still has, uh, still has human flesh in such a way that he affirms this sexual differentiation. It's intrinsic to who he is, and not just an add-on. So what I'm suggesting is that the incarnation and the resurrection of Jesus are God's affirmation to sexual differentiation in both creation and and new creation. And again, no one is more fully human than Jesus. Now what kinds of things, uh, other kinds of things can we 
take from this. I think what we've seen so far is that our sexuality is intrinsic to who we are. It's a good gift from God. Uh, male and female are affirmed by who Jesus is and what he has come to be. But how about not only the, the embodied nature of Jesus, but his life, his lifestyle? What kind of life did Jesus live? Well, Jesus never engaged, as we know, in a single sexual act, did he? And that would be unthinkable, perhaps, in our culture where sexual activity is viewed as the most direct path to personal fulfillment and self-realization. So what we learn from Jesus is that sexual activity is not essential to human flourishing or personal fulfillment. Sex isn't essential, sexual activity isn't essential to being human. Again, no one is more fully human than Jesus. So if we say that sexual activity is essential to what it is to be human and essential to human flourishing, that would mean that Jesus would not be the most fully human. And that's just not the case, is it? So his life teaches us that our, our sexuality is essential to who we are, but sexual activity is not essential to who we are as human beings. Jesus didn't need sex itself to be satisfied. Uh, he was satisfied in God. So notice what I said a moment ago that sexuality is essential to being human but sexual activity is not essential to being human. That is just what our culture flips completely in reverse, isn't it? Our culture says that, sexual, that sexual activity is what is necessary for human life and human flourishing but our sexuality is not essential. We can make of that whatever we wish it to be. It's not something objective or something that God designs or something that God gives as a gift. It's what we design. It's what we choose. It's what our wishes or desires tell us. We can negotiate that. But it's unthinkable to say that uh, we can be fulfilled as human beings without sexual activity. So again, uh, that's not what we learn from the life of Jesus. So, you know, again, you might say that thinking about the sexuality of Jesus might seem like a strange topic, but we, we need to think about this. We, we learn these essential realities from, uh, from the incarnation and resurrection of Jesus. Now, to say that Jesus did not need sex in order to be satisfied or to live as a fully human being does not mean that he lived an easy, pain-free life. His life was whole, contented, and richly human without sexual activity. It was especially if he's going to be the most fully human, but it was not easy and pain-free. We when I say it was not easy and pain-free, uh, we, we learn from the book of Hebrews that Jesus experienced all of our human temptations. 
So it, it, we might think, you know, as you hear me saying these kinds of things, you know, that seems hard to believe. You know, Jesus, uh, that's just not my experience. Um, you know, or, or the fact that Jesus was who he was meant that this was easy for him, that he could just sort of coast through life as the Son of God and not experience the heaviness of sexual temptation and the sexual brokenness of our world like I do. And that's just simply not the case. Not even close. In fact, the opposite is true. The reality is, is that Jesus ex experienced sexual temptation more than we do. Uh, as Hebrews, let me go back to Hebrews to, to point this out. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2, um, verse 18 says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And if you look over in Hebrews 4, verse 15, it says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. So part of Jesus being fully human is that he suffered when tempted and he was tempted in every respect. And I want to suggest to you, and, Jesus, and, uh, and Jake uh, pointed this out too in his sermon recently, I want to suggest to you that Jesus experienced the suffering of temptation and the temptations in every respect, uh, not less than we do, but more than we do. And the, and the main reason for that is because it is much harder to resist temptation than it is to give in to it. If you are tempted by sin and you struggle with it for a little while, but then you throw in the towel and you give into it and you sin, well, that's much easier than not throwing in the towel, is it not? Uh, sometimes the resisting, uh, you know, the longer you go with the resisting, the more it digs in, the more it hurts. And if Jesus never sinned and he was tempted in every respect as we are, this means that he always fought. He always resisted the temptation, which certainly was often heavy and very strong. Uh, I had a pastor one time that would describe it this way. Imagine that there's in front of me this quicksand. And, uh, and, and around my waist are these uh, bands that are going into the quicksand and pulling me toward the quicksand. And this is kind of what temptation is like. Temptation is pulling me toward sin. It's, it's pulling me toward the quicksand. And if it's pulling and I'm fighting against it, I'm resisting, it's pulling, it's pulling, it's pulling... And then, and then eventually I just get tired. Well, it's going to be much easier if I just give in and just jump into the quicksand, right? But what if I keep fighting and I keep fighting and I keep fighting so much so that those bands start digging into my waist and, and drawing blood even, and I'm pulling and pulling. Well, that's much harder. And what I'm suggesting is that the life Jesus experienced, even in terms of his sexuality, would have been like that. He understands our temptations in these areas. Uh, better than we do because he's the only one who has always resisted them. So, um, we can, I'm, what I'm saying here is we can then know that uh, whatever, whatever 
way of life that we're seeking to experience in light of the cross in fighting against temptation and denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following Jesus, we can know that Jesus understands the pain. He has cried the tears. He has shed the blood for this. And we can take these things to him. Now, what, what else can we learn from the life of Jesus in terms of sexuality? If we ask ourselves, how did Jesus interact with others who were sexually broken in many ways, even through their own sin? How did he interact with them? And I think what we see, and we see a number of stories in the Gospels where Jesus interacted with those who are sexually broken in one way or another. And I don't recall Jesus ever interacting with those kinds of people with severity and harshness or self-righteousness, that kind of attitude. Jesus reserved his uh, most harshest interactions with those who are self-righteous, right? He was harsh with the self-righteous, pronounced his woes on them. I don't recall Jesus ever interacting with someone sexually broken who had lived a life of sinful sexual brokenness with the same type of demeanor that he encountered the self-righteous. Now, of course, uh, if someone is living in sexual sin and they're self-righteous about it, then that might have been a different story. But I don't know any stories in the Gospels where Jesus interacts with someone who's sexually broken and points a finger or presses hard, but he seems to, to uh, rather than being harsh, to seek healing. That's his demeanor to seek healing, to draw them into the goodness of the life and grace that he offers and brings. Think about the story in Luke chapter 7. Uh, we don't know exactly all that this woman had been involved with in Luke chapter 7, but we know that she was a sinful woman. That's, uh, that's what the text says about her twice. Sinful woman. And perhaps or probably her sin was a prostitution or some types of sexual uh, sin like that. And, and you remember Simon, who Jesus was eating with in his house, uh, looked down upon this woman. He was self-righteous toward her, criticized her. And he, he thought to himself, if, if Jesus knew what kind of woman this was, he would not interact with her the way he is. He would not, you know, let her... Uh, be near him or touch him in the way that she is. But Jesus' criticism was for Simon in his um, self-righteousness, right? He says to, to Simon um, that uh, he who is forgiven much loves much. This woman has come in and has not ceased to wet my feet with her tears and... and um, it's because she's recognizing her sinfulness before me and recognizing the grace and forgiveness and love that I offer to her. And so basically I think what he's, he's saying to Simon is until you see yourself like you see this woman, until you view yourself like you view this woman, you'll never experience the love and grace and forgiveness that I offer. And so... What we learn from the life of Jesus here, again, is, is, 
is not just the essential nature of our sexuality and uh, how life can be fulfilled and fully human without sexual activity, uh, but we learn also, I think, from him how to engage with those who have experienced sexual brokenness. Think about the story in John chapter 4 when Jesus comes to uh, the woman at the well. There are a lot of things, a lot of, a lot of cultural difficulties with what he was doing there. Uh, as John says earlier in John chapter 4, the Jews would um, avoid Samaritans at all costs. Oftentimes they would, when they were traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem or from Jerusalem to Galilee, oftentimes they would go over to the Jordan River or across the Jordan River in order to avoid the Samaritans, in order to travel that way. But we see here that Jesus is going straight through Samaria in order to get to Galilee. And he stops off at this town, Sychar, and he encounters this woman. And his interaction with this woman would have been unacceptable to the Jews for a number of reasons. Uh, she was a Samaritan, so that was one strike against her here. Uh, she was a woman, which would have been another, uh, in that culture, problematic thing. But what we learn, too, is that she had lived a life of much sexual sin, sexual brokenness. She had had five husbands and that sort of thing. And Jesus does engage with her about the sin, doesn't he? But his interaction with her is not condescending. It's not harsh. It's not self-righteous. What he does is offer her life. He offers her this gift of living water. So again, we see another way of Jesus interacting with someone who was broken by sexual sin. Uh, John chapter 8, again, we see the story of Jesus with the woman caught in adultery. And we see there Jesus says to her, go and sin no more. He is calling her to leave behind her sin and find her fulfillment away from, from sexual sin in the life that he gives. But he, again, uh, his, his uh, harshness is reserved more for the self-righteous in that story as well. Well, let me, uh, let me just say a couple more things here from a couple of those who uh, have found the gospel of Jesus Christ, the life of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and the stories of Jesus to be life-giving in the midst of their, uh, of their own difficulties. Uh, Wesley Hill is another name I want to mention to you. And uh, Wesley Hill is a man who has experienced same-sex attraction throughout the course of his life. And he... Uh, He's written a book about his story called Washed in Waiting, which, which I would commend as a worthwhile read if you want to sort of climb into the perspective of someone who has grappled with the gospel in response to his own difficulties. But what I want to read you here is how he f has found life-giving hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because... 
what he has concluded is that yes he has had these struggles of same-sex attraction throughout the course of his life and he, he found hope in the things that I've been saying here about Jesus that his fulfillment does not come from sexual activity uh, but from the gospel of Jesus Christ he says in the end what keeps me on the path I've chosen and that path is to uh, for him is to live a, a single life um, and, and not to, you know, uh, shake his fist in God's face and say, you know, I was born this way, but to say, Lord, you take my life and make it what you want it to be because what you, um, what you teach and what you design is life-giving, not what my feelings or desires are. He says, in the end, what keeps me on the path I've chosen is not so much individual proof texts from Scripture or the sheer weight of the church's traditional teaching against gay sex. Instead, it is, I think, those texts and traditions and teachings as I see them from within the true story of what God has done in Jesus Christ and the whole perspective on life and the world that flows from that story as expressed definitively in Scripture. So I want you to notice what he's saying. What has most empowered him on this course of life is not knowing all the Bible verses that condemn homosexuality and interpreting them correctly. He believes that those Scriptures are there and they are true. And, and he doesn't twist them uh, to his own liking. But he says what has, what has given him most power to live a life in trust is uh, more this true story of what God has done in Jesus Christ. In looking at the incarnation of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and the lifestyle of Jesus and the way he lived uh, his life without marriage, without the need for sexual activity to be fully human, and in the way he interacted with those who are sexually broken. It's these kinds of things that have given him a taste of the beauty of the gospel and strengthened him to press on, more so than just lining up all the passages that uh, say, this is right, this is wrong, this is right, this is wrong. This is part of the reason why I wanted to do what, what we're doing here this morning. Let's think about the sexuality of Jesus. He goes on to say, we, we groan in frustration because of our, our fidelity to the gospel's call. And though we may miss out in the short run on lives of personal fulfillment and sexual satisfaction, speaking from his own experience here, in the long run, the cruelest thing that God could do would be to leave us alone with our desires, to spare us the affliction of his refining cares. So notice here he's hoping in the fact that Jesus understands his life, and he's hoping in the fact that uh, that God uses his experiences to refine him. And then he closes by saying this, Nearly 2,000 years ago, Good Friday gave way to Easter Sunday. And at the end of history, when Jesus appears, death will give way to resurrection on a cosmic scale. And the old creation will be freed from its bondage to decay as the new is ushered in. On that day, there will be no more loneliness. The wounds will be healed. I expect to stand with others like me at the resurrection and marvel that neither that uh, we are not gay anymore, that we both 
speaking of another man in particular here, together with every other gay Christian are whole and complete in the fellowship of the redeemed, finally at home with the Father. So he's also placing his, home not, not, his hope not only in the life of Jesus and the incarnation of Jesus, but in the resurrection that regardless of what kind of brokenness or struggle he experiences in, in this life, someday that will disappear. So, I don't know, you, you, may, you might think, well, maybe what he's saying there is a little bit odd, but I think there's, there's um, so much truth to what he's saying. As long as we live in this life, there are going to be these struggles, these temptations that we're going to be experiencing, and we should not think of what Jesus does in our lives, like, like what Rosaria Butterfield says, uh, we should not think of our sexuality like the, like the prosperity gospel that as soon as uh, we trust Jesus and become a Christian, then therefore he's just going to fix all of our, our um, bent sexual desires and temptations. Uh, that's not going to happen in this life. Uh, we're going to need to keep looking to Jesus and turning to him and hoping in his in our incarnation and resurrection. Uh, I mentioned Sam Alberry. Let me just um, just tell you how he says this about the gospel as well. And this is the last thing I'll I'll say here from Sam Alberry. Alberry is very is like Wesley Hill, a life of experiencing um, temptation, same sex attraction, and a life of of seeking to trust in the gospel and live according to the gospel. He says. Through it all, as someone who lives with same-sex attraction, I have found biblical Christianity to be a wonderful source of comfort and joy. God's word to me on this issue at times feels confusing and difficult, just like what Rosaria Butterfield said. I didn't always feel like it. But it is nevertheless deeply and profoundly good. The gospel of Jesus is wonderful news for someone who experiences same-sex attraction. And then, uh, one more place where he says, uh, he's quoting here from Matthew eleven twenty-eight, 28, where Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And that's such a good promise for our thinking about our sexual brokenness. All who are weary and burdened, for one reason or another, Jesus will give you rest. He says, this is a wonderful promise. Jesus assumes that left to ourselves, we are weighed down. Life out of sync with God does, does that to us. But as we come to Jesus, we find rest. Not just rest in the sense of a lazy weekend afternoon or a long sleep-in on a day off. Jesus means something far deeper. Rest in the sense of things with God being the way they're meant to be. Rest in the sense of living along the grain of who we really are and how God wants us to live. Rest in the sense of being able truly to flourish as the people God made us to be. So I think Rosaria Butterfield, Sam Alberry, Wesley Hill, and others have experienced that rest uh, in the midst of their sexual brokenness, and we can learn from them. I like to let them speak because they have experiences that I haven't had, uh, although I certainly have had my own experiences uh, engagement with sexual difficulty, sexual temptation, sexual brokenness in, in my own life, and I take hope from them in finding this rest in the gospel 
of Jesus Christ. All right, well, I want to pause and see if there are any brief questions before we go out. Uh, like I said, next week, Jake is going to talk more about marriage, singleness, some other things like that, and then, and then I will dig into more of those nitty-gritty details about some of the, the difficult issues we face in our culture, homosexuality, transgender, those kinds of things, the following week. All right? You've been listening to a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Cornerstone U exists to have our minds renewed by the Word of God, to see who God is, and to live in light of His Word and Gospel. To find out more about previous Cornerstone U classes, visit us on the web at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com forward slash cornerstone U.